Good morning. I am going to ask you, everyone, to stand for one more time as we read through the text this morning. We are going to be in 2 Samuel chapter 9, verses 1 through 13. And um, I just want to say it's, it's been a while since I've seen uh, you here at Lakeville Christian Fellowship, and it's a joy to be back here worshiping with you this morning. So um, for, we're in 2 Samuel chapter 9, verses 1 through 13, and we're going to read that all the way through. And it reads, And David said, Is there anyone left in the house of Saul that I may show him kindness for Jonathan's sake? Now there was a servant of the house of Saul whose name was Ziba, and they called, and they called him to David. And the king said to him, Are you Ziba? And he said, I am your servant. And the king said, Is there not still someone of the house of Saul that I may show the kindness of God to him? Ziba said to the king, There is still a son of Jonathan. He is crippled in his feet. The king said to him, Where is he? And Ziba said to the king, He is in the house of Machir, the son of Amul, at Lodabar. Verse 5, Then King, then king David sent and brought him from the house of Machir, uh, the son of Amul, at Lodabar. And Mephibosheth, the son of Jonathan, son of Saul, came to David and fell on his face and paid homage. And David said, Mephibosheth, and he answered, Behold, I am your servant. And David said to him, Do not fear, for I will show you kindness for the sake of your father, Jonathan, and I will restore to you all the land of Saul your father, and all the land of Saul your father, and you shall eat at my table always. And he paid homage and said, What is your servant that you should show regard for a dead dog such as I? Then the kings called Ziba, Saul's servant, and said to him, All that belonged to Saul and to all his house I have given your master's grandson. And you and your sons and your servants shall till the land for him, and shall bring in the produce that your master's grandson may have bread to eat. But Mephibosheth, your master's grandson, shall always eat at my table." Now Ziba had 15 sons and 20 servants. Then Ziba said to the king, According to all that my lord the king commands his servant, so will your servant do. So Mephibosheth ate at David's table like one of the king's sons. And Mephibosheth had a young son whose name was Micah. And all who lived in Ziba's house became Mephibosheth's servants. So Mephibosheth lived in Jerusalem, for he ate always at the king's table. Now he was lame in both of his feet. Please be seated. Why don't we go to the Lord in prayer before we go over this text? Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, you are awesome, and you are holy, and you are perfect, and you are sovereign. Lord, when we ponder your, your greatness, we are amazed and we're awestruck. We know that creation came into being merely by your words. By your words, the heavens were made. By your word, man came forth from the dust. And you haven't left us without eyes to hear your word. You are not a silent God. But I, I pray, O oh Lord, that we would dedicate our minds to know and listen intently to you, to think clearly about you, to eliminate false ideas that we have in our minds about you. And I'm asking for the impossible, Lord, and, 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 and here is my request, Lord, that your words would break into hearts today, that, that, that you would move, Lord. 
And Lord, that we would move from right thinking about you to run and embrace you with our whole lives. This could be new understanding for some, Lord, and I pray that they would see that you're speaking to them through your living word. And for Lord, Lord, for some, I know that this is something that they've heard before, but I, I pray, Lord, that they would hear it anew, that they would hear it afresh, Lord, and they would be awestruck by your speaking into their life. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. When, I, when World War I had begun, many of the soldiers figured it would be over quickly. They thought in just six months they would be home and they'd be with their families for the holidays. Not only would that war drag on for four more years, but it would prove to be one of the bloodiest wars ever. The Industrial Revolution had made it possible to mass-produce weapons of, of devastating destruction. There were fleets of planes. There were uh, guns that could shoot hundreds of bullets uh, per minute. By the time the war entered 1914, the Western Front stretched hundreds of miles, and there were countless soldiers living in misery in the trenches. Tens of thousands of of soldiers had already died by that point. There was bad news on both sides. The morale was plummeting. Well, there was a British machine gunner, and his name was Bruce Barnesfather. And like many of the infantrymen of the 1st Battalion of World War I, he was spending his holidays shivering in the muck. He was trying to keep warm. He had spent a good part of the past few months fighting the Germans. And now in part of Belgium, there he was. He was crouched in a trench that stretched just three feet wide by three feet deep. His nights and his days were marked by endless cycles of sleeplessness and fear. There were stale biscuits to eat, and and he says that there were cigarettes that were too wet to light. Here I was, he said, in the horrible clay cavity that they put me in, miles and miles from home, cold, wet, covered with mud. There didn't seem the slightest chance of leaving this one. Unless, of course, I would be leaving in an ambulance. Hold on to that story. We're going to go back to that story at the end, because I want to get to our text. As you read through First and Second Samuel, specifically when you start in First Samuel, if you haven't read First Samuel in a while, you'll notice that so much has happened up until this point of our text this morning. In First Samuel chapter one, God raised up a prophet, Samuel, and that's that's how we get the name of this book, Samuel. Samuel had an integral part in the life of Israel. He was a mouthpiece for God, for Israel. Now, in 1 Samuel 8, Israel demanded a king. You may remember that. They wanted a king like the nations around them. And Israel had, up until that point, only known one king, Yahweh. It was the same king that brought them up out of Egypt, out of of Egypt in Exodus, But Israel required now, they've requested a king just like all of the other nations. And then in 1 Samuel chapter 8, verses 20, God granted them their request. And you may remember who the first king there was given to Israel in in 1 Samuel. It was Saul, right? I can hear a lot of you, see a lot of you mouthing that word, Saul. (laughs) Well, the king Saul, first king, that ends up being really bad for Israel. 
Uh, Saul's reign was a failure in many respects. He disobeyed God. He went his own way. Saul would not trust God. And then in 1 Samuel, and I'm skipping here, and then in 1 Samuel 15, God's prophet Samuel says this to Saul. You have rejected the word of the Lord. You have, and God has rejected you from being king over Israel. And we come to, fi- come to find out that God had, has chosen to anoint another king over Israel. And you may, may know that that king was David, right? And so one may think that as soon as God took the kingdom from Saul and gave it to David, Saul would just have David over for tea, right? And just say, well, it's not my kingdom anymore. I'm going to hand it over to you. But we know that's not what happened. And, and David, uh, we know that, that Saul would chase and hunt David down. And there would be years of this hunting and chasing, Saul would, would hunt him like a wild animal. I counted at least six times where Saul tried to kill David. David would on the run from Saul. But what is interesting about that story is that in 1 Samuel, one of, one of Saul's sons, whose name was Jonathan, loved David dearly. We see in 1 Samuel 18, it reads, The soul of Jonathan was knit. To the soul of David. That's 18.1. And Jonathan loved him as his own soul. In 1 Samuel 18.3, we read, Then Jonathan made a covenant with David because he loved him as his own soul. And then 4, Jonathan stripped himself of the robe that was on him and gave it to David and his armor and even his sword and his bow and his belt. Jonathan stripped down and gave David his own robe. Jonathan loved David. And if you, if you read the story, you know that. And, and what's interesting about this, though, is that Jonathan loved David like this, and David loved Jonathan like this, but what's interesting is that Jonathan was the son of a man who wanted to kill David. Jonathan was Saul's son. Now, Jonathan's dad, Saul, if you think it through, if Jonathan's dad, Saul, succeeded in killing David, Jonathan could potentially be next in line, heir to the throne. But what we never see is we never see Jonathan caring about that. What we see is Jonathan loving David, protecting his friend David, caring for his friend David, and just helping David in all of his struggles. We see Jonathan verbally going against his own father, Saul, the king, to protect David. And what we see is we see Jonathan at times sneaking into into David's camp to encourage him. And it's a wonderful story with Jonathan and David. It is as if there wasn't a day that Jonathan said, I wonder how my friend David is doing. Jonathan must have been grieved over the fact that his dad, Saul, wanted to kill his best friend. This must have saddened him. It must have distressed him greatly. As I read through the Bible, I cannot find one negative comment, not one negative word about Jonathan. 
oh, we can point to the faults of Saul. We can point to the fact that Saul would not trust God. We can point to the fact that even in his dying breath, he wouldn't trust God. But as we look at the life of Jonathan, Saul's son, we say, what a friend. What a friend David had in Jonathan. How much had Jonathan done for David? How much had, had Jonathan loved David? And But Jonathan, like so many who were affiliated with Saul, lost his life. And Jonathan lost his life, and in doing so, David lost his best friend, a loyal friend, a loving friend, a kind friend. If there was one man that when David would think back to his youth and think, think with fond memories, he would think back to Jonathan. That's a really quick summary that brings us all the way forward to your text. Um, in our text this morning, David is in 2 Samuel 9. He's in what I like to call the golden era, and that's what I've titled this sermon, the golden era. He's no longer on the run from Saul here. He is the rightful king of Israel by this point. He's defeating his enemies left and right. Things are going really well for David. His enemies are at his feet. He's obtaining more wealth and more wealth. The Ark of the Covenant has been returned to its rightful place. Which brings us to verse 1. David asks in 2 Samuel 9, verse 1, Is there still anyone left of the house of Saul that I may show kindness for Jonathan's sake? A couple of things here. First, we should note that who is making the inquiry? It's the king who is making the inquiry. King David is intentionally asking how we can show kindness for the sake of his friend, Jonathan, right? This tells me that David, now that he's in the golden era, the pinnacle of his reign, he hasn't forgotten how he's gotten here. Not only will he look back, but he will intentionally seek how to show kindness. Now, David will remember, he would remember the covenant promises that he made to Saul and to Jonathan. There's a couple when David was on the run from, uh, from Saul, David ended up in a cave at one point. And you may remember the story where Saul ends up in that same cave. And David spares Saul's life that day. And then after Saul finds out that David spared his life, Saul said, I know you shall surely be king. And the kingdom of Israel shall be established in your hands, David. Swear to me, therefore, by the Lord, that you will not cut off my offspring after me, and that you will not destroy my name out of my father's house. And David swore this to Saul. So here is David, and he intends to fulfill the promise that he made back there to Saul. There's more. There's another covenant promise that I can think of. David was on the run from Saul, and he was hiding in the wilderness. And that was 1 Samuel 23, 16. And it reads, And Jonathan, Saul's son, rose and went to David at Horesh. And he strengthened his hand in God. And he said to him, Do not fear, for the hand of my father shall not find you. You shall be king over Israel, and I shall be next to you. Saul, my father, also knows this, Jonathan said. And the two of them, it says there, made a covenant before the Lord. And here we are, years later. And David will think back to that covenant that he made with his friend Jonathan. There is a sense that he thinks, I have not forgotten what has come about 
prior to me getting here, prior to the golden era of my life. I have not forgotten Jonathan, my best friend, and I will show kindness to Jonathan. But Jonathan is not here anymore. Jonathan has died, and I have mourned his loss. Is there a son of Jonathan? Is there a son of the house of Saul that I can show kindness for the sake of my friend, Jonathan? Verse, te- verse 2 of our text this morning reads, Now there was a servant of the house of Saul whose name was Ziba, and they called him to David. And the king said, Are you Ziba? And he said, I, I am your servant. David seeks to show kindness for Jonathan's sake, and so he's going to make an inquiry. I said that. It's already clear that David's heart is in the right place. The reason why I say his heart is in the right place because he has good intentions to fulfill the promise that he made to Saul and to Jonathan. And more importantly, Jonathan, um, he, he, he's inquiring here. Let's move on to verse 3. And the king said, is there, is there not still someone of the house of Saul that I may show the kindness of God to him? Ziba said, there is still a son of Jonathan. He is crippled in his feet. Look at those words there in verse 3. The kindness of God. It may be easy to skip over those four words, but I want to think about those words for just a moment. The kindness of God. In 1 Samuel 20, verses 14, there's a situation where Jonathan, going back, is Jonathan's going to investigate whether or not Saul intends to kill David. And Jonathan says these words in 1 Samuel 20, 14. He, he says, If I am still alive, David, show me the steadfast love of the Lord that I may not die. It's very interesting. If I am still alive, David, show me the steadfast love of the Lord that I may die. Jonathan says, in a sense, in that text, the Lord is going to remove every one of your enemies, David. He's going to break open a path for you, David. You're going to be the rightful king. Don't forget to show me the steadfast love of the Lord that I may not die. And here is David now, years later, and his response, his intention now, is to show the steadfast love of the Lord. Notice in verse 3, Is there anyone from the house of Saul that I may show the, stead, the, the kindness of God to him. I, David, am in a position to be able to show love, not just any love, but steadfast love, God's kind love, God's steadfast love, which, which is then going to pose the question, and this is the question, what does, what, what is, what does this love look like? Um, when, when, when we look at the way he, he says this. He says, I want to show the, the steadfast love of God. It then makes me say, makes me think, okay, what's that look like practically? And thankfully, we don't have to guess. And it's, it's very applicable. We don't have to guess what that looks like. The kindness of the Lord, the steadfast love of God looks like this. If you're looking at your text, it looks like a king inquiring about a man who doesn't deserve it. That's what it looks like. It looks like a king who keeps his covenant promises. That's what we're seeing. It looks like a king who, recognizing the broken condition of a man, picks him up, restores him, gives him life, gives him a seat at the table. 
It looks like a king who treats broken, undeserving men as sons in the kingdom. I don't know if we could have a better picture of Christ anywhere in 2 Samuel. And this is why I think that this is the pinnacle of David's reign. Because this is what Christ does for men and women. If you're a Christian here today, then you know that you were dead, hopeless, lifeless, crippled, alienated from Christ. But God sought you out and gave you a seat at the table. And if you don't know Christ, this is the way that he operates. He's not a man in a kingdom far, far away in a golden community to which you don't have the key. He He is a God who stoops down and he picks up broken people. And we are all broken. We are all sinners. That's exactly what David does. And it's a highlight reel of a text. Okay, so let's learn something about Mephibosheth. Who is this guy? If you turn to 2 Samuel 4.4, you'll see we find a little bit about him. In 2 Samuel 4.4, the text tells us, Jonathan, the house of Saul, had a son who was crippled in his feet. He was five years old when the news about Saul and Jonathan came from Jezreel. And his nurse took him and fled, and as she fled in her haste, he fell and became lame, and his name was Mephibosheth. So, who is Mephibosheth? For the purpose of this sermon, I'm just going to call him Chef. I do not, want, I do not think any of you want to hear me mispronounce Mephibosheth for a half hour. Um, but know that when I'm saying Chef, that's who I'm talking about. So who was this man, Chef? Well, if we back up in this story, we know a few things about his childhood. Chef was one of those people who could say, I had an awful childhood. I was raised in a difficult situation with very few positive memories. How many of us are like that? We can look back and we, we want to put on rose-colored glasses and we want to look back at, our, at the past. But an honest look back at the past reminds us of times of poverty. It reminds us of times of, of physical abuse. It reminds us of times of fighting and, and stress. Well, Sheth was, was a, just a child when his father died. Jonathan died. He was just a kid. Jonathan, the son of Saul, was slain in battle. Okay, Sheth lost his dad. At least he has his grandfather, right? Like some kids are raised by their grandfathers. Nope. Saul was not there for him. Saul was continually disobedient as a king. God tore the kingdom from Saul. Saul was tormented by an evil spirit. At the end of Saul's life, he consulted a witch instead of God. Saul ended his life by falling on his own sword. Chef, no father, no grandfather, but at least he had his health, right? Nope. When he was just a boy, his nanny, or you could say his caretaker, To escape an approaching army, what happened was that she took him to save his life. She removed him from his home, and as she was trying to run away to save his life, which was a good thing, she fell. And here's the catch about that fall. It wasn't one of those falls you can fix with a few Band-Aids. It was a fall that would cripple Chef for the rest of his life. No father, no grandfather, had to run from his home crippled for the rest of your life. And then years go by and we hear nothing of Sheth until we get back to our text this morning in verse 4. And the king said to him, where is he? And Ziba said to the king, 
He is in the house of Machir, the son of Amuel at Lodabar. Then King David sent and brought him from the house of Machir, the son of Amuel at Lodabar. Now just think from Sheth's perspective here in this text. He gets a message from one of the king's messengers, and he is summoned to come before the king. Now there's one thing that we know about kings, uh, conquering kings back then, is that they sought to remove any survivors of the preceding king. And so Sheth, he happened to be a survivor of the preceding king. Sheth was likely, I'm speculating a little bit here, he was likely not hopeful about this meeting. Here we have a new king, the same man that hunted, same man that was hunted down by his grandfather, based on Sheth's life already, a life of tragedy. We can only imagine what was going through Sheth's mind as he was heading towards the king. He was old enough now to be fully aware. There was a war between the house of Saul, his grandfather and his dad, and the house of David, this guy he was going to meet, the rightful king. How is this meeting going to work out? Will David the king be kind to me? Verse 6 of your text, if you're reading with me. And Mephibosheth, the son of Jonathan, the son of Saul, came to David and fell on his face and paid homage. And David said, Mephibosheth. And he answered him, Behold, I am your servant. David sitting on his throne, I can just see it, looking down, and there is the crippled grandson of the, of the crippled grandson of the man that used to hunt your life. And he calls this young man by name. That's important. He calls this young man by name. You see, it would be one thing for you to know that there is a king. It would be one thing for you to know that you're ruled by a king. But it's way more to have this king call you by name. Chef, his, his past was fraught with difficulty, so much loss. He couldn't have been easy living as a crippled person. There were no disability checks back then. And now you're called, and you're brought forth in front of this king. What do you do? How are you to act? What is your posture, Chef? Chef fell on his face. And he said, Behold, I am your servant. His only hope of survival is to plead for mercy from the king. And, and I and hope that this king will extend his hand in mercy and grace to him. I'm just going to show my cards nice and early here today. What a glorious portrait this is of Jesus. Your king calls you by name. He knows you. Every single one of you, he knows your name. Calls you to himself. You see, it's one thing to know that Jesus is a king. It's one thing to know that Jesus rules the world as king. And the whole world's going to bow their knee to Jesus one day. He knows your name and he calls you to himself. And the, and the application there is we are to repent of our sins, turn in faith to this king who is calling us by name. The one who always and every time shows mercy and bestows grace on his children. Verse 7 of our text this morning. And David said to him, do not fear, for I will show you kindness for the sake of your father, Jonathan. And I will restore to you all the land of Saul, your father, and you shall eat at my table always. 
It is possible that, that David knew that Sheth was going to be uh, fearful. He was going to have great fear in approaching him. Those first three words are, do not fear. At this time in David's life, I call it the golden era. And, and I would say that this text is a pinnacle in his reign, a point in David's life. This is pre-Bathsheba, a point in his life when he would act like a true king. A point in his life when he would stoop down, remember his covenant promises, and he would help this undeserving crippled man pick him up and give him a seat at the table. That's a true king right there. And in, in, in verse 8, and he paid homage and said, what is your servant that you should show regard for a dead dog such as I? Matthew Henry, he writes about this and he says, Sheth accepted this kindness with humility and self-abasement. He was not one of those take favors as a debt kind of person and think that everything that his friends do is not enough. The way that Sheth responds is the opposite of an entitlement behavior. An entitlement behavior says, you owe me. You don't see that here. There was something here about Sheth that was just so Jonathan-like. Think about Jonathan. Jonathan already had a seat at the table with the king, his dad. Jonathan was next in line for the throne. Jonathan had everything he wanted, but you never saw that behavior in Jonathan either. He would reach across enemy lines to befriend his friend David. It was a noble quality that we saw in Jonathan, and it's also a quality that we see here in Sheth. He displays that here. How humble his response is. It is the right response in front of the king. His response is the opposite of entitled. I mean, if you think about it, Sheth could have just gracefully thanked David for the regard for his father's memory and then been on his way. But he recognized his place in front of the king. He recognized the terrible position he was in life in front of the king. He goes as far as to say those words, I am just a dead dog. I am so undeserving. Who am I that you would show kindness to me? Likewise, every one of us can say the same thing. Romans 3.23, for we, we have all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. We are all, putting myself in the category, we are all dead dogs. God stooped down and he made a way for us to have life. How did he do that? Romans 5, 8, for, for God showed his love for us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. That's how we did it. Verse 9 of our text this morning, just when you think things can't get any better for Sheth, the text, the text reads, Then the king called Ziba, Saul's servant, and said to him, All that belonged to Saul and all of his house I have given to your master's grandson, Sheth. He, he must be struck by the kindness of King David. Why would you be so kind to me amongst all of the people around? Why would you be kind to me? Why? A couple of reasons. One is that David has not forgotten the kindness of his friend Jonathan, Sheth's dad. Jonathan was such a friend to David. David would never forget. David would do for Sheth what he could never do for Jonathan. 
David would give him a seat at the table and treat him like one of his own sons. I can only speculate how David would have treated Jonathan at this point. He would have ushered Jonathan in and given him a seat at his own table. But Jonathan is dead now. He has mourned his loss. But you want to know what? He's going to be kind to Jonathan's son, Mephibosheth. And she's going to show him the steadfast love of the Lord. He could also do that because David had known God's steadfast love himself. That's the key there. If David were to look back in his own life, as he did, he could see how even in hard times, even in times of running, even in times of fear, persecution by Saul, God always protected him. God loved him. God provided for him. God always made a way. God restored David's life. He sustained his life. And David, writing in, in the book of Psalms, so David wrote many of the Psalms, in 145.14, he writes this, The Lord upholds all who are falling and raises up all who are bowed down. And then in 18, The Lord is near to all who call on him, to all who call on him in truth. Verse 10 of our text this morning, And you and your sons and your servants, so he's talking to Ziba, um, and you and your sons and your servants shall till the land for him and shall bring in the produce that your master's grandson may have bread to eat. But Mephibosheth, your master's grandson, shall always eat at my table. Now Ziba had 15 sons and 20 servants. William Blakey, who was very helpful here, he said, he wrote, the kindness of David showed him, the kindness that David showed him was twofold. He restored him all the land of his grandfather, and in the second place, he made him an inmate at his own house, placed him at his own table. It is the same as if he had been one of his own sons. Verse 11, Then Ziba said to the king, According to all that my lord the king commands his servant, so will your servant do. So Mephibosheth ate at David's table like one of the king's sons. And Mephibosheth had a young son whose name was Micah. And all who lived in Ziba's house became Mephibosheth's servants. So Mephibosheth lived in Jerusalem, for he ate always at the king's table. Now he was lame in both of his feet. So what do we, what do we see here? We see a man, Sheth, with a broken past. We see a man physically broken, probably broken emotionally, tough life. And he's called before the king. He knew that he was nothing more than a dead dog. And he acknowledges that. And the king restores him 100-fold. The king gives him land. He's given people to work the land. He's given a seat at the table for the rest of his life. And he's treated as if he was David's own son. The text has so many applications to our own lives. And I just want to mention two things by, by way of application here. First is we need to seek to be, uh, we need to seek opportunities to do good. We need to inquire. We need to seek opportunities to do, to be doers of the word. In James 1, 2, he tells us, but be doers of the word and not hearers only deceiving yourselves. Men who seek to be doers of the word seek opportunities. They don't just wait for things to happen. They seek them. 
David went out looking for the way that he could be kind to Jonathan. He went out looking how he could honor the covenant he made with Saul and Jonathan. He wanted to honor Jonathan even after Jonathan was dead. Isaiah 32.8 says, but, for all, but, but he who is noble plans noble things, and on noble things he stands. We need to ask, how can I use every opportunity to do good? At my church on Wednesday night, we have a, a Bible study on Wednesday night, a, you know, Bible study, youth group, and, and some food. And I was sitting in line a few weeks ago, and I was waiting for coffee in line. And uh, I like coffee. And so uh, in line, there was, I, got, I got caught up talking to a few men in, in line, and I couldn't get to the coffee. And so uh, it was a situation, you know, real big. You know? And so, um, so what happened was there was another man who was sitting over there uh, behind me, and he noticed that I wanted coffee, and he came up to me, and he said, Josh, can I get you a coffee? And, and I said, yeah, sure, that'd be great. And so I was talking to the two men here in, in the line, and I noticed I was too far away from the coffee to be able to reach it, right? But I thought about it. Maybe I could just reach it and still have the conversation, but that would be rude. Later that day, I went home and I talked to my wife, and I said, I had gone 12 hours that day, and that was the kindest thing anyone had done for me all day. He went and sought out an opportunity. It was just coffee. He went, and out, went out and sought an opportunity to do good. Such a small act of kindness. I, um, I can go time and time again, countless stories in my life, and I'm sure you can, when people have sought you out, they have inquired, how can I do good for this person here. Kindness and charity, they're important, but they'll often require inquiry. Those that need help won't ask for it, and they often won't ask for it at least. Those that need you to help them can ask for it. And, 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 and William Blakey, William Blakey Garden, Garden, who was a, a Scottish minister, and he is, was in the 19th century, so 18, 1800s and somewhere in there, may, he said this about this text. He said, maybe in your youth, you received much kindness from friends. Maybe in your youth you received much kindness from friends and relatives to which at that time you could not repay. But now the times are turned. You are prosperous, but those friends and that, and that family, those families, they're in need. He said, these cases are often apt to slip out of our mind. It's not always hard-heartedness that makes the prosperous less fortunate. William says, it's often just mere, utter thoughtlessness. How good it is when we seek opportunities to do the word, right? And application number two is the reason why we can. Christ provides the reason to cross enemy lines to love others. Christ provides the reason to cross enemy lines to love others. Years before this text was written, Jonathan would reach across enemy lines, his dad, right, to love David. David now reaches back across those lines to help Mephibosheth. But ultimately, the reason why you can love in such a way is because Christ broke the bonds of sin. Romans 8.1 tells us that there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And I'm going to read all the way to 4. 4, the law of the spirit of life has set you free 
in Christ Jesus, set you free from the law of sin and death. For God has done what the law weakened by the flesh could not do. And important there is he says, by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh. Christ provides the reason we can cross enemy lines to love others. I started this sermon and I was talking about World War I. I'm going to finish that story. I left you guys on the edge again. Uh, it was an awful time, World War I, and many lost their lives. But the year was 1914. It was Christmas Eve. Many of you may know this story. It was a muddy, muddy season, and they, the men were on the western fronts of that first world war. A remarkable thing happened. It came to be called the Christmas Truce. And it remains one of the most storied and strangest events of that great war, and any war. And here's what happened. It was 10 p.m., Bruce Barnes' father, he noticed a noise, and he listened. He recalled, away across the field, there's something going on over there. And he turned to one of his soldiers, and he says, you hear those Germans over there kicking up that racket? And his soldier, soldier friend said, yeah, they've been at it for quite some time. The Germans were singing carols. It was Christmas Eve. In the darkness, some of the British soldiers began to sing back Christmas carols. Suddenly, Bruce recalled, we heard a confused sound coming from the other side. We all stopped to listen. The shout came again, and it was a voice in an English, in an English language with a strong German accent, and it said this, Come over here! One of, the, one of the British sergeants said, You come halfway, we'll come halfway. What happened next would stun the world. Enemy soldiers began to climb nervously out of their trenches to meet in the barbed wire section called No Man's Land. Both armies got up out of the trenches. Normally, the British and the Germans communicated across No Man's Land with bullets, with occasionally a brief time for gathering the bodies. The soldiers that night climbed out of the trenches, and they traded tobacco and wine, and they joined a, a spontaneous holiday party in the name of Christmas. Bruce could not believe his eyes, he says. He wrote in his memoirs. Here they were, the actual practical soldiers of the German army. There wasn't an atom of hate between these sides. Another British, British soldier named John Ferguson, he said, here we were laughing and chatting to men who just a few hours ago were trying to kill us. One German infantryman described how a British soldier set up a makeshift barbershop, charging Germans a few cigarettes for a haircut. Other accounts describe vivid scenes of, of soccer games and, and soldiers collecting the dead for each other. For the rest of the World War War, that never happened again. There was no, as far as I can tell, there's never been a Christmas truce like that. But for just one night, they reached across enemy lines in the name of Christmas. Some of us are angry about our past, the way that we've been wronged in the past, angry about situations that we've, that we've wound up in. Our health has failed us. Maybe our wealth has failed us. Maybe we've been left crippled like, like Chef. There was a wrong, however, that happened in the past that surpassed all wrongs. It was a separation from your one true king, King Jesus. You see, we come into this world with blinders on. We don't trust Christ with our whole life. We are like that dead dog that Sheth was talking about. Apart from Christ, we are dead dogs. There's someone in here that thinks that but they can potentially earn it by themselves. We can't. There's no righteousness apart from our King, King Jesus. 
We need to repent. We need to turn to God with our whole lives. The Messiah has come into the world. He's been put up on that cross. He's been crucified. So those who are far off can be brought near by the blood of Christ. The blood of Christ was shed on that cross for you. Do you know that Christ? Have you turned to him with your whole life? I pray that you have. Let's pray. Dear God, do not let these words fall in deaf ears. Dear God, do not let the evil one snatch these words from their minds. Please. There may be someone in here who does not know your son, Jesus, who he is, why he came. They may be broken and hurting in a very dark season of their life. I pray that they would see Jesus shed his blood for them, that they would see this world that's fleeting, that they would see this world as hopeless, that they would turn in faith and they would fall on their face like this man, Mephibosheth. Lord, forgive us for the times that we have squandered away opportunities to love others. Someone comes in that looks different and we don't talk to them for the times that we have refused to love our enemies. When we have thought that we have deserved anything because we are entitled. When we have thought that we have earned our own way, Lord, we, are, we deserve nothing. We are sinners. But you, Lord, are a gracious God. And you, Lord, are merciful. You made payment for our sin. Give us hearts to believe that truth. Let us hear the gospel afresh today. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.